0: because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about program management, whether in central product management or talent culture and D&I, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has worked in this space For the last two and a half years and is currently a senior business program manager at Lyft. But before I introduce you to Emily Cunningham, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that showcases upcoming guests and gives you career insights and inspiration to fuel your professional journey. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Emily Cunningham, a senior business program manager at ride sharing company Lyft, where she works in the central product management team to enable consistent product excellence by promoting the skill development, the community, and product development standards for all program managers at Lyft. Emily is also a board member of Colorstack, whose mission is to increase the entrance, retention, and success of Black and Latinx students who are pursuing technical careers. Prior to joining Lyft in January 2021, Emily spent a year working at Microsoft as a senior business program manager, but she was on the Talent culture and DI team. And prior to Microsoft, Emily spent almost three years at LinkedIn, where she started out working as a small and medium business relationship manager for the sales navigator team before she moved to a new role as a recruiter to introduce and reinforce LinkedIn's talent brand to Black. Latinx, LGBTQ+, the differently abled, and other underrepresented groups. Emily started out her career after she graduated from college working as a production planning and capacity management analyst at the Chrysler Group, and she worked on Chrysler's diversity recruiting as a recruiter and a program lead. There is obviously a whole lot that we have to get into.
1: Emily, welcome to Time for Coffee are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am caffeinated and ready to go. And thank you so much for the introduction and walking through all of those delightful zigs and zags of my journey so far. I am excited to be here.
0: Awesome. And it has only been, it hasn't even been nine years since you graduated.
1: (laughs) No, that's correct. I have been jumping all over the world and having so much fun doing it.
0: Ah. So great. A woman after my own heart. And it's also I'm so excited. I don't want to like I don't know what Emily's answer, by the way, to any of the questions that I'm going to be asking her is, but I have some hunches and I'm going to be testing them out as Uh-oh. we move along here. And I also want our listeners to know if after listening to this episode, you're like, I think I want to be a PM. I like this. Check out show notes to see if Emily's espresso shots episode is already dropped because that is where she drops some gems on how to break into this industry. So before we actually unpack what you do as a program manager at Lyft, Emily, would you mind giving our listeners an overview of what a program manager role looks like and what program management means at a company like Lyft?
1: Program management as a role, in essence, means that you are charged with identifying problems, setting goals around those problems, identifying a a solution or an execution strategy to go about solving those problems, driving the execution, and ultimately assessing the, the result and kind of doing it all over again, rinsing and repeating. That is the the nature or the arc of what program management is. And at Lyft, there are so many iterations, there are so many different ways that program managers work. We have program managers in different parts of the company, but generally the work is is very, very similar in the different lines of businesses and organizations that have program managers and that we're, we're given a, a task. It's a very obscure and complex issue. And we need to distill, OK, what is the problem that we're looking to solve here and how do we solve it? Who do we bring together to solve it and how do we get it done is, is the clearest way that I can explain it.
0: All right. Fantastic. You mentioned that there are PMs working in different lines of business, could you give us some examples of where you would find PMs at Lyft?
1: I'd be thrilled to. I have peers who also sit in our operations and strategy department that focus on policy, who basically understand what issues, what complex issues are facing a company like Lyft, our ride sharing company in the political landscape and how we go about tasking teams to solve problems between how our company and business operates and the political spectrum throughout the United States, for example. I've also got peers who are program managers that help to bridge together Multiple parts of the business to align them to like a new way of working. So, for example, if there are engineering teams that use one tool and engineering teams that use another tool, how do I bridge the gap between those two engineering teams and bring them together so that they use a brand new tool or the same tool? And what processes do they have that I need to pull together so that we're all operating the same way? There are program managers all over the company in different little pockets. And I think that you'll find that to be true of program management generally as a discipline that it operates in so many different ways. And in my pocket of Lyft, the programs that I manage are focused on, like you mentioned earlier, basically the efficacy of product management at Lyft. So I empower product managers by understanding what problems stand in the way of getting their work getting their work done, and how they are able to interact with
0: their work? So you're kind of like the chief problem solver.
1: <laughs> that that is a hat that I sometimes am esteemed to wear. Yes. And
0: when we say you're working in the central product management team, what does that mean, and what yeah. do you do?
1: I am privileged in sitting in the central product management team, which means that there are multiple lines of business at Lyft as far as how Lyft runs their business. We have a team that is focused on rideshare, the products that you're most probably most familiar with. We also have transit bikes and scooters, which is all the other modes of transportation to which Lyft offers solutions like the bay wheels or city bikes in New York that you might be familiar with. Mm -hmm. We also have a uh, autonomous vehicle team, which works on amazing things that offer solutions for people building autonomous vehicles. And we've got a fleet team, which offers like car rentals, not only for drivers, but also consumers. So what I do as I sit at the juncture of all of these lines of business, to make sure that all of these product managers within the business are using the same processes, have the same opportunities available to them, and are developing on the same skill sets. Those are some of the things with which I'm tasked.
0: So this is what I want to throw out to you that I'm speculating that has come easily to you since you were a little girl. And I could be totally Totally off the mark here. But have you been the kind of person, Emily, who was always good at puzzles and maybe spatial reasoning? So anything that required like looking at a big, massive data or information and then boiling it down to the most important parts?
1: I would definitely say in many ways, yes. And in some ways, absolutely not. Okay. (laughs) A skill I've always prided myself on, and I I will attribute this to my grandmother, is that she's always had a very full fridge and has managed to always squeeze the extra things in there. (laughs) So those are puzzles at which I have become very adept. And then also people-related puzzles. For example, I remember being a middle schooler and helping my much older cousin to plan the table seating for her wedding because of all the issues in her family that we needed to overcome. So people-oriented puzzles are kind of my jam.
0: Nice. Very nice. (laughs) Yeah. So could you take us back at Lyft, take us back into your job responsibilities and what they look like and maybe even take us into a typical day on the job for you now during the pandemic? Because, of course, everything is happening remotely.
1: I think some of the, the typical like functions of the job are things like stakeholder management, project planning, obviously, communication. But what that means in a more tangible way is that I on any given day, I'm in in lots of meetings with people who are, again, my stakeholders. So the leadership of the company, understanding what problems they're having and what their assumptions are about those problems, as well as meeting with who are ultimately my quote unquote customers, which happens to be the individual contributors who are product managers at Lyft and understanding their understanding of these problems and kind of taking those inputs and developing strategies to address the problems presented by those stakeholders and the issues raised by those customers to kind of develop programs. So sitting in meetings is how I spend a lot of my days, spending time strategizing with my teammates. I I do sit on a team of other people in the central product management team to think about how to solve these problems. And lots of time, like In deep thought, I write a lot of documents and a big part of what program management is when done well, just like product management is documentation, finding ways to structure what it is that you are going to deliver in a written way that is clear, understandable so that people can support it by way of just giving them a one pager. So I spend a lot of time rabbit holing into documents. How do I make this clear? Is this the right problem to solve? Are we thinking about the right strategy that ultimately solves those problems? These are the, the main components of a lot of my days.
0: What is it about problem solving that lights you up?
1: I think one of the things that I love about problem solving is beginning with the end in mind. I love to envision, okay, when we have solved this problem, the world will look like X. Being motivated by like what that outcome, that desired outcome would be, that lights me up and encourages and motivates me to think about all the potential ways that this could go wrong, all of the ways that we might fail at solving that problem is ultimately being motivated by what could be. So that's, I think, definitely what drives me in being able to to get it done. That's what lights me up.
0: Could you give us an example maybe of a type of a problem that you have solved over the last year?
1: Well, it's been such a year being that it is 2021. We're coming out of 2020, which was quite possibly one of the, I'll say strangest years. I think one of the problems that I was most excited to solve was that Lyft is a growing company and there's so many things that it's a young company by comparison to a lot of places. There's so many problems that we didn't really have roots or sources for. But ultimately, one of the bigger problems was we don't understand what our priorities should be because we're in a pandemic and things are constantly changing. How do we as employees understand what the priorities are at the company level so that we can create our own priorities that are according to those company priorities? It's a very complex and and rich problem that I was excited to tackle. And ultimately, what we decided to do, which I'm very proud of and I'm excited by still, is finding new forms for leadership and communication strategies and responsibilities for leadership to the employees underneath them. We found new ways to get people to like uncover what's happening in different pockets of the company, because we all get so siloed once we are figuring out problems, we can sometimes forget to bring other people in. So whether that was a forum for leaders to get together and discuss what's happening in their business, we found new communication strategies so that there's a repeatable and easily accessible way that we're communicating information consistently so that people will actually want to look into it so they can implement it into their own work, as well as just how creating a culture around how the employees interact. Interact with this information that's being given by leadership now that they have like worked together to deliver this communication, creating a culture around responding to this communication from leadership and giving inputs back so that there's a continuous loop of information happening between employees and leadership was one of the more complex and really exciting challenges I've gotten to work on in the last year.
0: So you mentioned that Lyft is a growing company. And it's mm-hmm. relatively small, I guess, compared to the other company whose name won't be
1: mentioned. Well, we'll say Microsoft, for example, where I came from beforehand, which is, you know, 160,000 people I last checked. I think Lyft is something to the tune of 4,000, which mm-hmm. is not tiny by any stretch. Right, sure.
0: <laughs> is that one of the things that you found exciting going from? a big company like Microsoft to a more nimble company, maybe like a Lyft?
1: I was actually terrified by that prospect because like you mentioned, I had been previously at Microsoft. Again, 160,000 people. LinkedIn, which at the time I think was 40,000 people and Chrysler before that, which is another hundred plus thousand people. I was kind of terrified at the prospect of going to a quote unquote smaller company like Lyft just because I had gotten so comfortable at the prospect of like what it means to be in a well-founded, well-established company. Their culture is well-established. Their processes are pretty solid and well-established. I was kind of afraid of that it might be the wild west and that Process might not exist, and that the you know just it would be very different. I, it's something I had never encountered before, but I actually found that it's something that I loved. I loved the dynamism of being able to create things that are completely brand new. They seemed like no brainers to me, but you know nobody had just taken the work upon themselves. So being able to be foundational to some really important cultural aspects of the company has been. Really exciting for me.
0: So the pivot wasn't driven by the desire to go to a smaller company. What was it that drew you there?
1: You know, it's interesting. I I would say, and this is probably back to the question about what does product management look like? And in different places, what does it look like? Where I had done program management at Microsoft and I dabbled in project and program management at LinkedIn, it was often in like an individual contributor role. And also I happened to be only the lonely. I was the only person managing a lot of these projects and programs. Whereas I was drawn to Lyft because there was actually, I discovered a team of people with whom I would work on this type of work. And I was excited by that because I wanted to really become a sharpshooter at program management. I think I had a lot of the great building blocks for this type of like niche that I thought that I was coming into. But as far as like the discipline of program management and getting better at like what's really hard skills this job entails, I wanted to learn from other people. So I was really attracted to the idea of having a group of people who could like tell me what I'm doing wrong and how things can be done better at Lyft. So that's ultimately one of the biggest decisions why I made the jump.
0: Got it. Okay. well, thanks for explaining that. You told me before this interview began, because I give all of my guests a form that they can fill out and I give them the opportunity to suggest different things that we can talk about. And one of the things that you suggested was that you see yourself as a generalist and what you think are the benefits actually of being a generalist versus being a specialist and how you can determine, how our listeners can determine which they are?
1: That's a great question, I think. And I don't think there's, there's any shame in being one or the other. I think they're both excellent things and they're both necessary components to any body of work. I identify myself as a specialist because I think, or excuse me, a generalist. Because while I think that there are some core skills that I know that I have, I know that I'm a great planner, I know that I'm a great communicator, things like that. There's no one way that I think I want to apply them, which is why I've had a job in sales and I've had a job in recruiting and I'm now in program management and God knows what I'll be next, but it's gonna be something different. I'm probably going to take on a different kind of role because it all hinges in like a core skill set. Whereas I think a specialist, alternative or is something that is somebody who is very passionate and engaged by a certain type of work, one type of way of applying those skills, again, which is very important and needed in our world. There are software engineers who begin at junior software engineers and become partner software engineers, things like right. that. Or surgeons, for example, it it, hel- it benefits surgeons to be a brain surgeon for you know decades on <laughs> instead of jumping from one type of surgery to another. So yeah, I think I wanted a flexibility and a fluidity to continue to try and see what kind of things I'm good at, but by way of having the same skills and applying them differently. I
0: totally get that because Mm -hmm. I think I'm also a generalist Mm -hmm. and having certain foundational skills. And I think for our young listeners, this is such an important point. We talk about cross-cutting skills. Mm -hmm. So, if you're really good, as we just heard Emily say, at planning and communications, I mean, that applies to every single industry out there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it- it's just, it's really empowering. And and we could say the same thing, I'm guessing, also about specialists. Mm-hmm. They may be perhaps more pigeonholed to a particular industry, you know, tech versus the non-tech, maybe manufacturing or who knows. Mm-hmm. But
1: would you agree with that? Yeah, I absolutely would. I absolutely would. And I think, you know, there there are different benefits like I said that each have and I think for somebody like me who I might be ashamed to say, I bore easily. I like to try new things. I like to consistently jump into new things, but there are some people out there who know what their passion is and they want to do that thing power to them by all means do that in the most specialized way that you can so I think I'm kind of with the wind I one of the things I love about being a generalist is that I've gleaned so many insights and I've learned so much about how businesses operate and how people operate by way of being in these different disciplines and different kinds of jobs and it's made me more compassionate more empathetic it's made me a better cross-functional partner to a lot of people because 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 I have played so many different parts and roles in different companies. And I think it's a competitive advantage of mine that I can speak knowledgeably to different partners with whom I work.
0: Amazing. So prior to joining Lyft, as Mm -hmm. we've already suggested, you were at Microsoft for about a year where you were also a senior business program manager. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you were with the talent culture and D&I team, the diversity and inclusion team. Talk about that role, Emily. What were yeah. your responsibilities in that role? How was it different than being at Lyft where you said you were part of a team?
1: It's interesting. This talent culture and DNI team that you talk about was me. I was that team. <laughs> it was a really awesome opportunity. I had the the pleasure of working underneath a VP of engineering in the cloud and AI group at Microsoft. And I worked underneath him and his chief of staff. So I was able to work underneath the chief of staff and that offered me a lot of insight again into how business worked and it was amazing. And this chief of staff was over myself. Who was the program manager of talent culture and DI within this engineering organization, as well as a communications partner, wrote all of like the communications coming out of our engineering group, as well as like the admin team she owned. So she was kind of like, you know, she she has a a, the role that was more like broader and more strategic. Whereas my focus, again, was serving this engineering group in all things around talent, culture, and DI. And so what that meant is that I partnered with all of the directors and the managers within this engineering group. Group to help them to build their talent planning process, which means like their hiring plans for the next year. That I also advise on ways to better diversify their talent pipeline, as well as strategies to better include and create a culture of belonging within their teams. So we did a lot of analysis and assessment on like how their teams currently operate and how they might implement new practices and strategies to create a better culture within their team. So a lot of people oriented programs for specifically engineering and product managers within this engineering group were the partners with whom I worked.
0: And how did you know what to do in that role? Because, (laughs) you know, you were out there on your own building all of this.
1: It's difficult. I am trying to learn to speak more with more honor to myself on these things, because I think if you would have asked me a couple of years ago I would have said I, I fly by the seat of my pants. But there's a lot of intuition that goes into it. And intuition isn't something, you know, ephemeral and magical. Intuition is knowledge that might be more subconscious that is built by a lot of smaller inputs that you put together. So I would say a lot of my work was in intuitive, but I also relied heavily on cross functional partners to serve as as advisors and like strategy and thought partners. And I think that is true of any program manager is that your work and how you go about planning is benefited by and essential to also your cross functional partners. So I worked with a diversity inclusion program manager who was sitting at like the more corporate Microsoft level. I also worked with a recruiting partner. I also worked with, again, the, all of those engineering directors. So I was able to gather a whole lot of different inputs to look at all this information and figure out like, how do I put all these pieces together to make sense for a strategy moving forward? That's that's how I was able to make something out of what might have seemed like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I'm wondering if you did what I was too embarrassed to do and too proud to do at various stages of my own career where I didn't want to tip my hand to any of my colleagues that I was sometimes flying by the seat of my pants. Mm. And if only I had taken a colleague out for coffee and said, could you give me some advice because I'm kind of floundering here.
1: Mm -hmm. Did you do that? Absolutely. I, you know what? I, I make it a point. I think my humility is one of my superpowers (laughs) because it gives me the inclination to bring in more people to look at this, look at this thing that I make, what's wrong with it? You know, help me to figure out how to do it better because we've got to be able to detach ourselves personally from our work that is professional. You know, like we are only benefited by feedback. We will only become stronger by learning what our blind spots are. And when you're coming into a role that is so obscure, you're a team of one, you don't have a whole lot of other support, you rely on those external inputs to help you understand how to do the job better. So I think that's a really important note for any young professional or anybody at any stage in their career is being open to feedback and and being excited about it. Building a culture within how you work as, as yourself, to bring other people in to help you be scrutinizing of your work, to scrutinize your work and understand what opportunities you have to make it even better.
0: So did you ever just straight up say to any of your colleagues that you felt particularly comfortable with, I just, I need your help. I am not sure what I'm doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think there are sometimes that, you know, that call for help is a little more desperate than others. Than- <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I think that what I've learned is that if you do it, I I say it all the time, but if you do it early and often, then hopefully you won't come to the point of desperation because you've had so many people's hands on your work that you are not in a point that you are desperate. But I've absolutely been there many times in my career. I I fortunately, I thankfully don't think that I have in program management so far, but In earlier parts in my career, I have absolutely gotten to that rock bottom and like just, you know, reaching out for help with people I trust specifically.
0: Great. And I raise that because I feel I lost out on some incredible opportunities Mm -hmm. to grow faster. If only I had dropped the act. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? If only I had just been less proud that I had to kind of fake it till I make it and had said, I'm lost. Could you help me? And I just hope our young listeners learn from my mistakes and learn from what you did right, Emily. As they begin their careers.
1: What you said just resonated so strongly with me. There's something I would love for your listeners to hear as well. I I have a, a small personal story on that as well. At the very beginning of my career, that production analyst, production planning capacity analyst role that I had at Chrysler was one of the most harrowing experiences of my professional life. I studied economics, so people often assumed wrongfully that I was like this brilliant mathematician because I had to have passed econometrics and all these statistics courses or whatever, which I did. I did well in those, but I'm a great student, whereas I was new in my career. I. I was coming into this analytical role that I had no experience with. This is more supply chain oriented work and I had no experience in supply chain. In the first six months of my career, I was in the office until 9.30 p.m. every day. I was the first one in the office. I was stressed out. I was breaking out with acne on my face in ways I never had before. I think I might have developed an ulcer. I was stressing out terribly because I didn't know how to do what I was doing. And I was the only woman on my team, the only person of color on my team, the only person who hadn't worked at the company for less than 10 years on my team, the only person under 40 on my team. It was not the most open environment, or at least I didn't perceive it to be an open environment to say, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing here, especially since people assumed that I was walking in with all these skills. And it got to a point where, again, as you might assume with all these long nights and these like physical manifestations of this stress, my personal life was beginning to suffer and was distracting me terribly. It got to a point where I just knew I was going to be fired. I was almost certain of it until that very last moment. And I I don't remember what the impetus was, but I went to my boss and what you might learn at some point, hopefully you never have to learn this personally, but there's something that's called a PIP in the corporate world or a personal improvement plan. And that's generally what happens when companies won't let you know, hey, you're on thin ice. Well, I went to my manager, not knowing that this was a thing yet, but I came to him with a plan on how I plan to get better in my job. So I think I might have just beat him to the point unknowingly. Again, I didn't know at a point what a pit was. And it was at that point that he said, you know what, maybe we should start talking to other teams and see if maybe there's another place where you can apply your skills. Because it seems to me like you're doing your best, but maybe you do better somewhere else inside the company. So that was like my first introduction into other teams. And I got into another team that was more like sales facing and I excelled at that much better and I just have to share that because like just don't suffer in silence. Like there is just no need for it. There's no reason you should be wreaking havoc on your body and ingestive system. Like there are just so many other ways to go about it than to suffer alone and in silence, asking for help early and often and even being honest with yourself about, hey, I know I'm smart. I know I'm talented. Maybe this is not the right, you know, spot for me. This is the Albert Einstein if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, you're going to think it's stupid, you know? So I just had to share that story because what you said resonated so deeply with me.
0: Oh my gosh, Emily, that was so powerful. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. And it actually made me think of something I posted on LinkedIn a number of weeks ago about how careers unfold Mm. and how instead of thinking About how you're going to figure out what you're going to do Mm -hmm. as if you're following a recipe in a cookbook, something that works for like every time you make lasagna, you want to do this. Maybe you throw in a little more oregano, maybe you add a little spicy sausage, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but you're basically following a recipe. Mm -hmm. You are not a chef. Instead, no. you're a mad scientist who's <laughs> like in the lab, putting all kinds of shit in the test tubes. Yep. And sometimes it blows up. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's like, poof, you know, the big whatever you get all that shit all over yourself. Because the only way you can learn the right formula for you mm-hmm. is by doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You learn by doing. So it's not that Emily failed. It was not a good fit.
1: It was a god-awful fit. (laughs) Okay,
0: move on. It's not, as she said, it has no reflection on her intelligence, her capacity, her talents, her, you know, absolute career down the line, the successes that she has had and will have. Zero. It meant she started in a job that wasn't the right fit. And the same thing may happen to you. Yep. Move on. Use it as a learning experience and I'm sure that Emily learned stuff in that role that was useful.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I just you're so right. Just using these these things as like inputs into the larger puzzle that will be or the, the larger story that will be your life. And I think that's one of the things that I I cherish so much about my career and that so I love to talk about how zigzaggy it looks in the outside is that like with each move I've made, I've been building on my own knowledge of like, what is right for me and what isn't. I think that with each zig and zag that I've made, I've gotten closer and closer and closer to like the things that feel right for the person and the skills that I am and that I have.
0: The formula.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You are
0: perfecting the formula that is Emily Cunningham.
1: Yeah. That's true. It's, it's been magical, full of learnings. <laughs> oh my goodness.
0: I love that you use the word magic. That is, that is like one of my favorite words. And I use it in the course that I'm teaching on this college to career bootcamp about how life is full of magical experiences that you cannot even imagine. Yeah. So before we go down another rabbit hole. I want to just quickly power through a few more steps in your career. And you already touched on Chrysler, which is awesome. But before moving to Microsoft for a year, you had spent almost three years at LinkedIn, starting on the sales navigator team as a small and medium-sized business relationship manager. What did that role entail? What is Sales Navigator?
1: Whenever I start to talk about LinkedIn, like there's a huge beaming cheese on my face. I, I absolutely love LinkedIn as a place to work. The Sales Navigator product is a tool that is built on top of the LinkedIn platform that in essence provides additional filters that are specific to how salespeople might use LinkedIn. So, to benefit your audience, there's also a tool called Recruiter, which you know is the another partner to the Sales Navigator platform. Recruiter is the same way; it offers additional filters to slice and dice the information that exists all over LinkedIn, so that recruiters can get closer to the type of candidate that they want to reach out to. So, I put in, let's say, for example, I am an engineering manager at it's called Bose, the the audio company. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put in a filter and I'm a recruiter, I'm putting in a filter for people who have engineering background, who have worked in audio systems, for people who have written X, Y, and Z keywords that let me know they're passionate about like the audio experience, blah, blah, blah. So sales navigator is the same thing for businesses who are looking to connect with other businesses to sell their products. So if I'm still a Bose person, I'm able to connect with, you know, car companies, uh, people who might be in charge of partnerships for car companies to put these Bose speakers in their cars, as an example. So that job of mine was I had a book of clients that I reached out to on a regular basis and them renewing their subscription to the sales navigator tool was basically my remit. So I worked with small businesses, taught them how to use their sales navigator tool help them to measure the success that they were having the tool, how many sales that we're making based off of the connections that they were making with this tool, for example. And so it ultimately was a sales role because them renewing was how I was measured. And that was new for me. This is the first time that I ever carried a quota, for example, that was a, a whole big thing, but it made the most sense because right before that, when I was at Chrysler, I was most recently there in a sales like role. And so making the pivot from Chrysler into LinkedIn, from automotive into tech, was a huge deal for me. It was a much better fit for me. I loved it. And I ultimately got that job because of a networking event that was happening in their San Francisco office. And I, especially in my younger professional life, loved networking events. Oh, I ate those things up. (laughs) Uh, I think the woman who would ultimately become my boss could sense that about me. I was you know, I was a butterfly in the room. And that's the kind of person you need to to be to be in sales. So yeah, so I think that role was quite a learning experience, learned a lot about what things I love about my skill set, what kind of things are not the things that I want to do with my career, all of that. That was probably more than you were asking for. Sorry, Andrea.
0: Actually, it wasn't at all. Because (laughs) now I want to know when we were talking about magic, this is an example of magic. Mm -hmm. Because Emily went, to a networking event. And I recognize we can't go to one in person, but there's still tons of opportunity out there to network through LinkedIn, through your alumni network, through family, friends, all of that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So what did you do with that relationship that you started when you met that woman from LinkedIn?
1: Yeah, I um, It's so funny, because this was back in 2015, which was only six years ago, and feels like forever ago. And I was carrying business cards with me at the time, which I haven't had since then. But I was basically passing my business cards to everybody that I met and things like that. And she told me, Oh, we don't we don't take business cards. I don't want to waste your paper. And I was like, Oh, no, she doesn't want my card. She doesn't want my information. So I connected with her immediately on LinkedIn. And we kept in touch on LinkedIn. They weren't active. I don't think her team was actively hiring at the team. But shortly thereafter they were. And I didn't know it was her team, but I kept sending her after we met just things that I was learning and hearing about LinkedIn as a company. And I would love to come and like talk to some of her teammates to understand about the role. And she did. She invited me to come on site to talk to some of the teammates just to learn about like what it was like. And then I found an opening to a team that I suspected might be on her role and asked one of those teammates that I had met for a referral. And so they submitted a referral for me. And then we got to I got to the interview process from there. And the rest is history.
0: That is it. The rest is history. And this is how it is done. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the fact that 80% of jobs are hidden and not posted, even if they're posted, you are, I want to say, I don't, I can put a percentage of like either 40 to 60% more likely to get the job if you were referred into it.
1: I have never gotten a job that wasn't via a referral. And I think that speaks to the deep importance of building that network and being clear with people about what kind of things you're passionate about and what kind of things you're good at in any conversation that you have in the professional context. Because I think that I attribute all of of my career moves up and horizontal to, to the connections that I've made. They were all referral based. So I vehemently advocate for people to do that. Love it. So...
0: From the sales navigator team, you moved into a recruiting role. You were part of the recruiting projects and you were a university technical talent diversity lead. So can you explain what you did in that role, Emily, and what your responsibilities were? And is this where you began to develop your passion for diversity and inclusion in the workforce?
1: You know, I would say that to answer your second question first, I think I've been passionate about diversity in the workforce probably since my college days. I went to Howard University, which is an HBCU, a historically black college university. And I know that a lot of the recruiters that came to my campus were there specifically because of budget given to their their company's D and I efforts. And so it obviously mattered a lot to me because that's how I was able to meet people to make a job or to get a job. But I started at Chrysler by working with the D and I recruiting team. There was a team dedicated specifically to recruiting at my university. So I think that's where the passion began. However, you know, I think I started to mention when I was talking about the sales role I had at LinkedIn. I knew that these are skills that I had that I was good at like talking with people and walking them through a process and having that process come to a culmination. So I was like, you know what, I think that recruiting is very similar to sales in that you have somebody who's interested in something and you kind of sell it to them and you walk them through the process and then they decide to be in whether or not we move forward. So I, I, I thought that would be an easy transition. The hiring manager thought so too, which is why I think I got the job. But it wasn't until I was in the job that I was named the lead for our team's diversity inclusion recruiting efforts just because of natural things that I was proposing about the team. I was like, hey, it seems like there are some biases that are happening in how we are trained to review resumes. We are being trained to look at certain schools, which could exclude a lot of awesome talent that we're just like not even considering or just things like that. So I started to just kind of naturally propose that we do more things. And it was proposed to me by my manager that I just take a little bit more of the time of my workday to spend time about like thinking strategically about how we can shift the way that we recruited on the university technical recruiting team, to be more inclusive in its, in its practices. So I was still recruiting with a good amount of my time, but all of my passion was going into thinking about how to be more diversity focused and more inclusive thinking in our team's work. So things like branching our recruiting team efforts into Puerto Rico. I, I kicked off a project plan on what that would look like, how we build a talent brand, how we recruit from their schools. And ultimately we wound up doing that. And it was very successful. I thought of a nurture program. So for candidates who either didn't accept their offer or didn't get to the job, but they got to like very final round interviews. How do we keep them in mind? Because maybe the time wasn't right then, but maybe it will be later. So how do we like build a process so that we're regularly reaching out to them and letting know when we have job processes or job postings or letting them know how to do well in our interview processes, things like that. That's when I developed probably less my passion for diversity inclusion, but more so like how strategically we can think about implementing it and how to be a project planner in general, which ultimately turned into my program management career.
0: Boom. Yeah. You beat me to the punch. I was going <laughs> to say, you know what this sounds like to me? This sounds like you were doing a PM role, although your title was different.
1: Oh, yeah. But the yeah. function
0: was the same. You were problem solving.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like I said, each, each with each role, I think I chipped away closer and closer to get to like the path that I'm on now and hopefully will continue to do so. You were
0: getting closer to your unique formula.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's
0: flashback very quickly, Emily, to when you were in college. As you said, you went to Howard University, HBCU, and you got a BA in economics. Oh, yeah. With a minor in communications and culture, and you were a Howard University trustee scholar. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. It was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Did you know what
0: you were going to do with your degree, Emily, when you graduated?
1: Heavens no. <laughs> I I had ideas about what things I, I think I thought then that I would be passionate about. At the time, I thought that I wanted to go into economic policy. And I actually am still very passionate about that. I still at some point might go into policy and specifically around economic policy. But at the time I was kind of just taking assumptions at like what things I heard were jobs that were available. And at the time it was, I started college in 2008, which was like, you know, the, the zenith of the economic collapse that happened at the great recession. And the things that I was hearing was gonna be available were things that were in this economic policy type of work or financial institution work. So I figured that by studying economics, I would have a really broad yet applicable set of knowledge to apply to these job offerings that might be available when it came time for me to graduate. So that was really the reason that I, I chose economics is that I wanted to be really marketable on the on the job market when it came time for it. But also because I, again, was passionate about like the political economy and Especially how resources are distributed to people of color for wealth building opportunities in this country. So, no, short answer there is absolutely not. Had no idea that my career would turn into what it was and only had like a faint idea of like what kind of things I might do at the time.
0: <laughs> so, we know that you went to work for the Chrysler Group and poor thing started in the production planning and capacity management analyst or as a production planning capacity management analyst, Mm -hmm. which wasn't the right fit. But how did you get that job?
1: Actually, this is, like I said, I've never gotten a job that wasn't referral. I had the benefit of economics was in the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard University. I studied that as well as communications, which was its own college within the university. And also I was in a co-ed fraternity called Delta Sigma Pi, which was in the business school. So I had the benefit of being in all of these different parts of the campus and with all of these different networks. And it was because of one of my fraternity brothers that I wound up getting the interview I got in front of Chrysler. He was a really good friend of mine, is still a very good friend of mine. And I told him I I had a few offers for for full-time employment, getting closer to graduation but there weren't things I was very excited about. They were kind of like very, just jobs that I wasn't excited about. I don't want to demean them. So he introduced me to the guy who was his hiring manager at Chrysler. And one, I think I was able to ride the coattails of his brand, his hiring manager at Chrysler absolutely adored this friend of mine, just thought that he was a creme de la creme. Anybody that he would put in front of him must also be the creme de la creme. So that got me, I think, the, the conversation and what got me through the interview process was that I did have some knowledge available to me. I think that I was benefited by having studied economics because I was understanding of like the landscape of like the automotive industry and the role that it played in not only the economic crisis, but its potential rise. I entertained people with those conversations, I think. Also, I had like some analytical skills available to me. Again, I did do well in my econometrics and statistics classes that I would later learn are not signals of performing well in analytical roles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's- I got into the front door was, again, this friend of mine who was in this coed frat of mine, Delta Sigma Pi, who made the introduction to me, to the hiring manager. And I, I want to flag here. I, I have returned the favor. He now works at LinkedIn. So, Great. Yeah. So the, the network just continues to give there.
0: I love it. Mm-hmm. So I have two final questions for you, Emily. What advice do you have for college students around their own career expectations for Mm -hmm. their first few years out of college?
1: You know, I I hate to say this, but this is like the first thing that comes to mind is like, be okay with doing the work that is like I don't wanna call it grunt work, I don't wanna call it menial labor, but do be okay with doing the things that aren't like CEO status. And the reason that I suggest you know being okay with this kind of work is because it is such critical foundational knowledge that you gain by way of understanding the smaller parts of how a company works and how a smaller company or at the smaller pieces within a company benefit the overall business objectives so i would say that is one not only beneficial but two it's also very realistic because you're coming in with some experience but not a whole lot and so we need to figure out like what skills you do have and where your competencies lie and what we project that you might be good at. Because had I not had that terrible little analytical role that I had, I'm not going to call it little again, don't want to demean it. Had I not had that role, that was a God awful fit for me. I never would have been able to blossom my career into what it is. So I would say that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I would have is be okay with the roles that might not be the biggest, shiniest thing that you thought you would have at time of graduation. I'm
0: curious about what you just said. Why do you think that if you hadn't had that first job, you wouldn't have blossomed?
1: I think that because of that experience, I was able to identify what kind of people I need to put around me to be successful. And by what I mean, what I mean by that is in roles that do require like heavy, heavy data oriented and analytical work. I'm going to bring somebody else on the team to help me with this because I know that this is a weak spot of mine. And by doing that, by having that knowledge of like what I'm good at and what I will rely on other people to help me with, I've been able to be on a launchpad. I've been able to grow with the help of others by having the knowledge of what things I'm not good at. It's been very, very valuable.
0: I would say just like gentle pushback. I think you would have learned that eventually. I think it is.
1: I probably didn't need to like get close to having ulcers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, you learned to play to your strengths. That's true. Yeah. Which is great. Which is great. But I think that you might
1: have. Don't take it from Andrea just to play to your strengths and don't like go into a job that's absolutely terrible for you.
0: (laughs) But again, we're all mad scientists. So sometimes you need to test and then iterate. So final question, Emily, if you could go back to Howard and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have right now, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I would say the advice that I would give is to just try a whole bunch of things. I think I was I was set on trying to develop this, this whole case for why I should be in this one job or this one type of career and ultimately it's entirely different than what I wound up doing and and that's fine i love my journey i don't know if i would change anything but i think i would encourage myself to have just tried some more things you know to try writing for a, a column in the university newspaper or try an internship that i didn't know whether or not would be a good fit for me i had a couple offers i wound up turning down because it wasn't in direct alignment with the career path that i thought i would have and, economic policy, I would go back and encourage myself to just figure out what things give me energy, what things give me joy, because I don't think that that was my focus at the time. And I have learned it in life, what kind of things give me energy and give me joy. But I think I would have been benefited, my career would have been benefited by having taken the opportunity to learn some of those things sooner
0: such wise words. (laughs) Emily, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the time for coffee community. You have like, man, do you have a lot of, you have leg up on so many other people your age. I just, I'm Really blown away by the level of maturity and insights and takeaways that you have as somebody who's not even a decade out of school. So I just can't even imagine where you're going to be 20 or 30 years from now. And I wish you continued happiness and just fulfillment in your professional journey.
1: So much, Andrea. And thank you so much for having me. I, I love that this is a program that students have available for them to tap into because this is awesome work and awesome stories that you're uncovering. So thank you so much. I feel very humbled to have had this opportunity.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of t for c we